John 6, verse 1. <clears throat> After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we... We come to you this morning with an eagerness to hear from your word. We come to you this morning as those who are needy, people who desperately need to hear what you have to say. So we pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to put away the competing distractions, Lord, that might be in our hearts and in our minds this morning so that we may hear from your words. Speak to us, Lord. Lord, this is, not, this is not my word. This is your word. And may you teach us and may we receive your truths this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On October 7th, 1965, at an all-girls school in Blackburn in England, two girls uh, complained of headaches and soon passed out. And then just within two hours, 85 girls complained also of headaches and other symptoms and soon passed out and then were rushed to the nearby hospital. Now, the strange thing about this event is that there was no evidence of a direct cause. So public health officials came in and did tests, and there was no evidence of any pollution of the air or the water or even anything in the food. Clinical and laboratory findings were negative. 
No one had any idea what was going on, what was wrong with these girls. And as a result, the epidemic was considered to be a case of mass hysteria. One psychiatrist says that with mass hysteria, people have to believe they are ill and collectively communicate that illness through psychological means. So in other words, it was all in the mind. There's nothing, there was nothing physically, biologically, or medically wrong with these with these students, but the issue was psychological. People believe that they are sick, so they manifest physical symptoms that correlate to what they think they feel. Now, usually, with mass hysteria, there's a trigger that kind of sets off this chain reaction, and so not long before this particular event, there was a, there was a, a polio epidemic. And so, after coming through that, these, for this particular community of people, where they were emotionally vulnerable, there was a fear of going outside and becoming sick, and so, this was kind of understood to be the thing that kind of, the trigger that set off this case of mass hysteria. So, in the, the crowd that we've just read about through the, in John chapter 6, is suffered from a case of mass hysteria. There's a strange case of this, of this epidemic in the crowds and, it's a, and it has a, these alarming symptoms. And the worst part about it is, is that the crowds don't know that there's something wrong with them. Now, however, while the, girl, the, the symptoms of the girls who suffer were rooted psychologically, the symptoms that the crowds display in this passage are much more of a spiritual nature. Right? So while the girls believed that they, they saw one person or two people that were sick, and then, so they then themselves believed that perhaps that there's an epidemic going through the school, and then they believed themselves to be sick, and then they manifested those symptoms. The crowds here in, the God, in, in, in the John chapter 6, their sickness is much more of a, of a spiritual nature. There's a, there's a misguided expectation and interpretations of Jesus and who he is and what he came to do, and that then correlates to these physical symptoms that are rooted with, uh, with something that's going on in the heart. And so, this will actually be sort of a, a three-part three sermon as we walk through the book of John. So, we'll spend three weeks on John chapter 6. And John chapter 6, in my opinion, is one of the most important chapters in the, in the gospel of John. And also, I would argue, one of the most disheartening passages in the entire Bible. So first, this morning we'll look at the, the stress factor, or also known as the trigger that kind of set this, this off, set off this epidemic. Second, we'll look at the symptoms, and then we'll conclude with the cure. So the trigger that kind of precipitated this mass hysteria upon the crowd was the signs that Jesus was performing. Right, so we think back to John chapter 2, where Jesus turned the water into wine. That was his first sign, but then by the, end we, by the time we get to the end of John chapter 2, it tells us that Jesus also performed many other signs that people witnessed. And the signs were, were miracles. In John 2, verse 11, talking about the, the sign of, uh, of Jesus turning the water into wine, it says that this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The purposes of the signs or the miracles or the works of Jesus were, were threefold. The first is that they manifested the glory of Jesus. That is that they revealed to the people that there was something extraordinary about this person, about Jesus Christ. 
that he's not just a carpenter's son, that he's not just from this particular town, that this isn't just uh, the son of Mary, but there's something different about this individual. And number two, the purpose of the miracles was to bear witness to his identity so that it would stir or stimulate faith on the part of those who witnessed the miracles. So that it's intended for people to come to a better understanding of Jesus, of Jesus is and come to believe in him. In John 10, 37, Jesus says, if I am not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. And then number three, Jesus heals people out of compassion, right? Jesus cares about the people. He cares that they are sick. He cares that they are ill. And so he heals them. In Mark 6, 34, it says, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. The idea there is not that they are a people without a pastor, but they are a people who have no direction, no guidance. And so he has compassion on them. And so he teaches them. And it is also the reason why he, he feeds them. Because in Mark 6, it's also a kind of a, a, a sort of, not sort of, but it is this uh, retelling of this same story in John chapter 6. And so the crowds having seen Jesus perform all these signs and all these miracles or even or just having heard of Jesus performing these things, so then they respond by following Jesus Christ. So the crowd right, is amazed and they're awed, as, as any of us would be, right, to see somebody performing these miracles. And many of them have probably have only heard of Jesus performing these miracles. Some of them have probably been eyewitnesses to Jesus performing these miracles. And some of them probably were healed by Jesus himself. Again, in Mark chapter 6, a retelling of this same event, it tells us in Mark that people came from different towns and villages to come and follow Jesus. And so just imagine uh, this, this, this exodus of people fleeing these, not fleeing, but just coming out of these towns to come and follow Jesus. Imagine a crowd of people leaving the town of Portsmouth to come and follow an individual. And it's all because of the signs that Jesus is performing. So then like the, like the polio epidemic that set off the chain of psychological sickness at an all-girls school, so it was the signs that Jesus was performing that became kind of a, a catalyst to this mass hysteria in the crowd. But the problem was that the people did not see the signs as a revelation of Jesus' true identity. Instead, they misinterpreted the signs that they witnessed, which then leads to a case of mistaken identity, which we'll get to a little later. So then, there are also certain conditions in this passage that we ought to consider that sort of only aggravate the situation. And so, right, so Jesus performed the miracles, and that kind of gets people, the lights turn on, and people begin to follow Jesus, and then there's, there's different things are going on in their minds. They're starting to make these connections about Jesus and what he came to do and all these things. But then there's also these conditions. So verse 3, it tells us that Jesus set up on the mountain with his disciples. And that's the, kind of the, that's the first condition we should notice. In Mark 6, it tells us that Jesus sat upon the mountain and began to teach the crowds who were following him. And so that's very similar 
And the crowds would know this, being Israelites. This is very similar to what Moses did back in the Old Testament. Moses would go himself up on the mountain to commune with God, and he would come from the mountain, and he would teach the people from the mountain. So that's the first thing. The second condition is that the passage tells us that the Passover was at hand. The Passover was right around the corner. And so at this point, the people would be thinking about not only traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, but they would be thinking about the meaning of Passover, the stories that they've been told throughout history that what the Scriptures teach, right, about how God performs signs and miracles and wonders in Egypt to show the people, to show, the, to show Pharaoh that there is only one God and He is in the heavens. And it's all concluding with this, the, the greatest of His signs, and that is taking the life of every firstborn child in every Egyptian, Egyptian household, sparing only those of the household of the Israelites who slaughtered a lamb and painted the blood on the doorposts as they were directed by God through Moses in order to be spared from that judgment. And so people are thinking about the Passover and what it means, the things that God has done in the past. And then the third condition is the bread. Right, the people were hungry. And in, in Mark 6, right, the retelling of the story, it tells us that the, that the disciples asked Jesus to send away the crowds because it was getting late. The people are hungry. Send them to the nearby villages so that they may get something to eat. But Jesus instead decides to provide for them. Now, it tells us that there were about 5,000 men. It doesn't mean that there were only men here, but it only counted the men for whatever reason. That means that every, if, if every man had a wife, and they had children, that it's easily about 20,000 people there sitting at the foot of the mountain, hearing from Jesus and being fed by Jesus. So it is an incredible miracle because all they have is five barley loaves and a couple fish. So then taking these, consider, these, these, these things into consideration, so what does that tell us? So these conditions, right, the, the feeding of, the, of all the people, the Passover being close, and Jesus sitting up on the mountain like Moses did. All these kind of things, along with the stress factor that Jesus was performing signs, and that is the reason why they were following him, is meant to kind of paint a picture for us that the, that the people were making these connections that, that there's a, a new exodus was coming. So just as God performed many signs in the Old Testament, upon the people of Egypt. So Jesus is also performing many signs as well. 20,000 people leaving their towns and villages to follow Jesus is very similar to the, the, the Israelites leaving Egypt to follow Moses. And the Passover celebration being so close, that was the kind of the thing that made this connection in the minds of the people. And let's not forget that Moses also provided bread for the people when they were in the wilderness and they were starving without anything to eat. And then that, and conditions, and all those things, that then leads to the symptoms of this mass hysteria. And the first symptom that we see is that the people, the crowds, follow Jesus. Right? So making these connections, having these interpretations of Jesus, what he came to do, taking the signs and all these things, the Passover and what it means... The first symptom that they show is that they follow Jesus. Now, that doesn't sound bad, right? We want people to follow Jesus. Jesus wants people to follow him. And it sounds like it's the right kind of response. But a passage tells us that they were following Jesus because 
of the signs that he was doing on the sick. And this particular symptom only gets worse later on. But for now, the reason why they're following Jesus is not good is because they're following Jesus for the wrong reasons. This crowd would actually fit into the category of the flawed faith that we talked about before. That's at the end of John chapter 2. In John 2, 23, it tells us that when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Right, that passage defined what kind of belief that people had. It was not the kind of faith that Jesus would felt he could entrust himself to. So in other words, they had a fickle faith. They had a flawed faith. So the crowds were following Jesus, not as the Son of God, but they followed Jesus as a miracle worker, as simply as someone who could just alleviate the distress. But when Jesus calls a person to follow him, he bids them to come and die. Luke 9.23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Matthew 10.38 Jesus says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So if you're following Jesus, or if you intend to follow Jesus, then you've got to be prepared to follow him for the rest of your life. That is what Jesus calls for. This is not a half-hearted following. This is not a, I'm going to follow him for a time, and then I'm going to quit, and then I'm going to jump into the bandwagon later on. That's not the kind of following that Jesus demands. To follow Jesus means that you have to follow Jesus all the days of your life, through thick and thin, through trials and tribulations, through suffering, through sickness, through plenty, through lack, through joys, through sorrow. It means that you are following, and such radical obedience stops nothing short of, of surrendering absolute control to Jesus Christ. And Jesus promises that those who follow him, who commit to following him, who commit to denying themselves daily, regularly to follow Jesus Christ, that they will receive life and receive it abundantly. So here... In the second verse, the author is already hinting to us how this event is going to conclude, and it's not a very good conclusion. The second symptom we see is that they, it tells us that they are wanting to make Jesus their king. So in verse, verses 14 and 15, when the people saw the sign that he had done, that is feeding them, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So when the, the people are thinking about the prophet, where they said that this is the prophet who has come to the world, they're making the right connection. They're thinking about the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 through the lips of Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. 
I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So again, the crowds made the right connection, but they came to the wrong conclusion. See, because the people wanted a new exodus. The people wanted deliverance from Roman rule, though their situation was far better than what their forefathers experienced in Egypt. They wanted Jesus to lead them to become their own people, their own autonomous nation. They wanted safe passage to a new promised land. So to the crowd, Jesus was a political leader whose power was equal or even greater to that of Caesar. But Jesus was not going to give in to their desire, so he withdraws from them. So the people failed to understand the true identity of Jesus Christ because they have painted a picture of the God that they wanted, which is, which is our, our, our tendency. It's our natural tendency. You know, whatever it is that you, that you love most, whatever it is that you gravitate towards, whatever that, is, that thing is that you spend the most time in, whatever that thing is that you, that you seek for, uh, for alleviation from stress and anxiety and worry, whatever that thing is, it's kind of it's the God in your image. The people wanted to be rescued. They didn't want to be under the, the Romans anymore. They wanted the promises of God to come into fulfillment, but they had a wrong picture of Jesus Christ. So then they're, they're infected with this spiritual disease, and then they want to come and take Jesus to be king to force him to be their king, to be their political leader. But in verses 16 to 21, we see the cure. It says in verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was not dark, now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This passage clarifies for us who Jesus is. As the disciples were crossing, were, were traveling across the sea, it says that Jesus appears to them walking on the water. And in Job chapter 9, verse 8, Speaking about God, it says, God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Now, a better, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, right, that word trample is actually translated as walked, which is a better, a better interpretation of what that passage is intended to communicate. So in other words, it's that God walked the waves of the sea. In Genesis 1 and 2, it tells us that the, that the earth was dark and void and chaotic and that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. In the scriptures, and in fact, in many other cultures, the waters, the oceans, and the waves typically represent that which, is, that which is chaotic and disordered. But God represents that which is order and symmetry. So John, here in this passage, in this telling of Jesus walking on the sea to meet his disciples, is kind of painting a picture for us of what is order and stability walking on the face of that which is chaotic and disordered. 
And if you remember in Mark chapter 4, where the disciples are on the boat and they're in the middle of a storm and Jesus is taking a nap. But then he wakes up and he, what does he do? He calms the waters. He brings order into what is chaotic. And all of this is intended for us to know that Jesus is God. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just this political figure. But he is God. He is the son of God. And so not only were the crowds misguided about what Jesus, about what Jesus came to do and who he is, which is a symptom of this, their epi, this spiritual epidemic, but their desire for freedom and present oppression from the Romans was so nearsighted and so temporal because Jesus did not come to lead an exodus of people away from Rome, but to lead an exodus of people away from sin and its curse. Jesus did not come to overthrow Caesar, but to conquer death and the devil, which are much greater than Caesar. Jesus did not come to walk his people safely through land and bring the floodwaters of judgment upon the Roman legions. Instead, Jesus came to provide a safe and direct passage to God the Father while also upholding the waters of God's judgment. Jesus did not come to lead people to this earthly promised land, but he came to grant eternal life to all those who believe in him and trust him and follow him and to make them citizens of the heavenly kingdom. That is what Jesus came to do. Only by beholding Jesus Christ and letting him and his words interpret for them his identity could cure this, this epidemic in the crowd. But they have to be willing to listen. And next week we'll see if they listen to Jesus' words. Now, before we conclude, let me give you just one word of exhortation just from the passage, and that is to look to Jesus Christ as your God. Look to him as your God. The crowds in the story look to Jesus only as the, the means of alleviating the present distress. They, they saw him as the miracle worker, the one who could feed them. But Jesus is much more than that. Jesus is God. Jesus is the one who can bring chaos out of disorder. And so we need to know who this God is. We need to know who Jesus is. That comes from being in his word. And I wish where we all go through trials and, and suffering and tribulations and hardships, where we get, we get sick, we get ill, and sometimes there's just no answers, right? And as, and as, as a pastor and as your, as your brother in the Lord, I wish that I could tell you that Jesus came to take away all your suffering and hardships and your diseases and your illnesses. I wish that I could tell you that God came in the form of Jesus to take away all that. But if I told you that, then I'd be dishonest. Because Jesus did not come to relieve us of all of our circumstances and situations and to make all our problems go away and to give us a life of peace and comfort. But Jesus came so that he can come into the storms of your life in the middle of the night and tell you, it is I, do not be afraid, do not be terrified. Jesus is the voice of peace, the, joy, the voice of comfort in those times of trials and hardships. 
and he does aid us, and he does provide for us. He gives us what we need, what we need it most. Let me read you some comforting words from John Calvin. We learn from them, from Christ's, we learn from Christ that it is in Christ's presence alone that we have abundant grounds of confidence so as to be calm and at ease. Believers who know that he, that is Jesus, is given to them to make propitiation, that is to save them from sin, as soon as they hear his name, which is a sure pledge to them both of the love of God and of their salvation, take courage as that they have been raised from death to life, calmly look at the clear sky, dwell quietly on earth and victorious over every calamity, take him for the shield against all dangers. And there's always, we're always going from one thing to another, from one hardship to another. And praise the Lord that those problems, those situations don't last forever. But the one thing that is consistent throughout it all is Jesus Christ. And he means to be a shield to you against all dangers, against all discomfort, against all tribulations. That is what he is here for. That's what he came for. He came to give us eternal life and to have hope and to have encouragement in the fact that we have eternal life. That even though we go through difficult things, that that gift is never taken away from us. And the question we should be asking ourselves in the midst of trials is not when is this going to go away, but am I pursuing the kingdom? Am I pursuing Jesus? Only those who pursue the kingdom receive the aid of God. John Calvin also says, talking about this particular miracle in John 6, let us, let us now sum up the meaning of the whole miracle. It has this in common with the other miracles that Christ displayed in it, his divine power in union with his beneficence. It is also a confirmation to us of that statement by which he exhorts us to seek the kingdom of God, promising that all other things shall be added to us. For if he took care of those who were led to him only by a sudden impulse, how would he desert us if we seek him with a firm and steady purpose? <clears throat> True indeed, he will sometimes allow his own people, as I have said, to suffer hunger, but he will never deprive them of his aid. And in the meantime, he has very good reasons for not assisting us till matters come to an extremity. Sometimes situations get really, really, really difficult. And sometimes that is the only time when the Lord comes and delivers his aid. The question is not, is, is not whether or not Jesus will come and provide his aid, but it's a matter of when. And sometimes it's to the very beginning, sometimes it's at the very end. But what we must do is continue to pursue the kingdom, to pursue Jesus Christ and trust that his aid is coming. Our greatest means of comfort comes from looking to Jesus Christ as our God, who tells us that he is with us and that he shields us. Right, and we wish, right, I wish that we could, in some way, in some measure, have this life of comfort and ease that we would never suffer That isn't, that isn't the case. And that's the reality of the scriptures. 
but the, what the scriptures do tell us. In Philippians 4, if I can find it. Philippians chapter 4. At the end of verse 5, it says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Think about who wrote this word, these words. It's the Apostle Paul. And Paul, Paul didn't have a home to go to, right? He was traveling everywhere. He was persecuted everywhere he went. He suffered hardships. And he tells us, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These words would mean nothing if Paul was a, was a guy who was living on a, in a mansion and had all his comforts and had everything he wanted. Hey, just pray about all things and God will give you peace. It's like, oh yeah, that's easy for you to say, right? But this is coming from a man who suffered, who knew what it was to pray to the Lord and receive peace even in the midst of turmoil. And that's, that's a promise to you that if you pray, if you seek the Lord, if you pursue the kingdom, then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is what Jesus came to do, to assure us, to give us confidence in his promises, to give us peace. He is the one who comes to us and tells us, don't be terrified, because I am with you. Next week, we'll continue to look at the crowd and their curious case of this epidemic. But Jesus here in verses 16 to 21 begins to show us that there is a cure and that is in Jesus and knowing who he is and what he came to do. And so next week we'll see what Jesus has to say and if they listen, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing to us the person of Jesus Christ. God, we wish that we could have absolute peace in this life. But as long as there is sin in the world, peace will only be a temporary thing. But even though, even though there might not be peace without, we can still have peace within because Jesus abides with us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus speaks to us words of comfort that eases our fears and our worries and our distress. Lord, and we pray, Lord, I pray for, I pray for my brothers and sisters, for those who are going through hardships in this very moment. God, I pray that you would Relieve them of this, of this, of the distress. 
But if that time should not be right now, Lord, I pray that your rest, that your peace would rest upon their hearts and in their minds, that you would speak words of comfort to them, that you would tell them this morning and remind them each and every day that you are with them, that they have no fear, that they have no, no reason to be terrified or be worried. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, for being who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen.